Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for both a designer and a senior designer, both in Chicago, Illinois. Fidelity Investments is looking for a principal designer for their UX design and concepting team. This is a remote position, but they are also open to candidates in Boston, Massachusetts. UC Davis is looking for an assistant professor in interaction slash graphic design for their Department of Design in Davis, California. And the University of Texas at Austin is looking for a tenured senior colleague, associate or full professor in design for their Department of Design in Austin, Texas. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to let you know that we released our 2021 Holiday Gift Guide. Now, we released it a few weeks earlier than we usually would. Normally, we do it around December 1st because we wanted to give you all a chance to really stock up and hopefully get ahead of whatever shipping delays are certainly going to happen this year. You can check out our holiday gift guide on our website, revisionpath.com. And you know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday are coming up pretty quickly. So make sure to check out the gift guide and hopefully you can get some great stuff. Now, let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Terrell Cobb, a design lead at Microsoft in Dallas, Texas. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Terrell Cobb. I am a design lead over at Microsoft as part of the Digital Transformation Studios. Digital Transformation Studios. That sounds super lofty, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. But before we do, like, how has 2021 been for you so far? How have things been going? 2021 has been a great ride for me. I believe that last year during the pandemic, it was learning how to be more self-sufficient at home and also taking care of the fam, all while taking care of myself as well. And I think within 2021, I've gained the appreciation of changing states and moving and then also starting to center life around just taking care of me and also taking care of the family. So it's been a good ride so far. Nice. Also, you moved to Texas this year then. Yeah. So when Microsoft had the opportunity for flex work, I took advantage of that and uh, got an opportunity to come back to the Dallas area and get to some familiarity and also just enjoy the atmosphere that we're in right now. Sorry to rub that into a Pacific Northwest folks. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask what's changed for you last year, but clearly location has been a big part of that. Yeah. And the sun. And, and the, the sun. sun. Being able to see the sun. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so being a, a design lead at Microsoft over the platform that you mentioned, can you tell me about that? Like what all does that entail? Right. So the Digital Transformation Studios is a conglomerate of several spaces within Microsoft. 
one of those spaces in which I work in is the business applications group. Business applications group are the parts of the business that actually build applications for large enterprise customers. And being able to sit in that part of the arena of Microsoft, it allows me to see how businesses are specifically using supply chain and provide certain intelligent solutions to that supply chain space. What does your like team makeup look like? Yeah, so my team today is made up of a couple of designers and also a researcher. However, one of the things that we kind of anchor to within Microsoft is being able to go within a one Microsoft mindset. So I also consider my engineers and PMs as part of my Tetrad or my team as well. So I have an amazing group of people that I get to build amazing things with on a daily basis. I feel like that's been a fairly new development within companies to have like a researcher on the design team. As it relates to what you're doing, how does that work? I appreciate research so much. I believe I'm one of the biggest advocates for research and also content design. But specifically research, I I believe that they're the silver lining of experiences. And if we don't have their heartbeat of what the experience should be, we're building in the wrong direction. And that could be expensive over time. Mm. I can see how certainly if you feel like you're going in one direction and internally you might think that's a good thing and then your users are using it and it's something completely different. They're not responsive to it or receptive to it like you want to and you have to go back to the drawing board. Exactly. Exactly. I think just being Southern and being from the South, you hear those proverbs like it's wrong to run 100 miles per hour in the wrong way. (laughs) you would want to go in the right way so that you're not making further mistakes. So yeah, it's, they're essential to the start of the project. They're essential to the midpoint of the project and they're essential to the delivery part of the project. Walk me through what like a typical day looks like for you. So a typical day for me these days are just a bunch of negotiating. It's either negotiating confidence of how much confidence a user is going to be exposed to by the options or things that we're building. It's also the negotiation of time, of how much should the team be leveraged against a certain initiative? What are we talking about six months from now? What are we planning for a year from now? How do we engage the team itself? And I think recently, really taking a step back away from just design as a delivery, as a process to more of enjoying the process of actually designing and the delivery will get there, but actually taking the time to enjoy the process of discovery, going into definition, going into actually defining from the research and actually delivering something that's powerful. And I'd imagine like in that process, you're also like working in sprints and making sure everyone's up to speed in other parts of the company or maybe in other parts of your team, because you mentioned like engineers as well that you're working with. Indeed, indeed. So the it's a healthy balance of speed and quality. And I know not a lot of other designers out there have to deal with most of that, but being at a large enterprise company like Microsoft, it's just, there's nothing new under the sun. And you have to bring in your best footing on what that solution could be next, if Mm. that makes any sense. No, that Um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also at Microsoft, you're the co-founder of an employee resource group there called Black Designers at Microsoft, which is for Black Designers at Microsoft. Tell me how that whole thing came about. Yeah. So the amazing story behind that is that I came into Microsoft and previously started other groups like Dallas Black UX and also while I was at Capital One, worked with a couple of folks to kind of co-found the Black and Design Employee Resource Group there. When I got to Microsoft, it was more of, hey, I'm just going to focus on my career and a climb. I'm going to leave the Employee Resource Group to the side. I'm going to just stay focused and do this. First day walking in, I meet another black designer and say, and she basically says to me, Cherry and Porter from Houston basically says to me that, hey, I've never worked with a black designer before. You are my first black designer that I've ever worked with before. Wow. And that was the inkling of, okay, here we go. We're about to do it again. You're like the the Grand Theft Auto (laughs) meme. You're like, oh, shit, here we go again. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. 
No, so um, it then was intensified by both of us being on the same team and actually going to orientation. And when we went to orientation, we saw on the screen another black designer that was a part of the studio. Mm. And we're like, well, wait a second, where is she? And this is Zoe in it. She's been inside of the, st- the studio, but pretty much could not find her. And then lo and behold, the next all hands, we meet with each other and we're like, huh, okay. There has to be more of us. Where are we? <laughs> I think along with that and just how big the company is, along with some of the understanding of designers being disenfranchised from not even being inside of the world of design from a black designer standpoint, we took that as an opportunity to build something ourselves inside of Microsoft and grow the talent that's internal but then mm-hmm. also attract talent that's external to the company as well. That sort of feeds into what I was going to ask, like what sorts of things are, is the group doing internally and in the larger community, but recruitment sounds like a big part, at least of that external, I guess, outreach of the group. Is that right? Indeed. Indeed. I think if we look at just some of the general grounding of the group itself, it's based in on, not just looking at one form of design. So that's one of the biggest differences there. It's not just a UX designer and you're a part of the group. It's more so of design with the capital D as it's referenced from our fearless leader, Jonah Sterling. It is design, it's research, it's producers, it's data science, motion designers, audio designers, front-end mm-hmm. development, illustration. All of these people are a part of the group. And the key points there is getting into the intentional community to influence diversity. So influencing diversity internal to therefore make it external, just creating that ripple so that we can continue to build from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And doing that, it was growing the community itself by creating Teams Channel and safe places, along with the opportunity to do share outs, hackathons, Right now, anybody in the group can kind of spin up a opportunity for someone to have a crit review and they can basically get started and you'll have multiple people join in to give them feedback. And it's different because you're getting feedback from friends in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I could tell you like, nah, bro, that's not going to make it. That may not make it, bro. Or yeah, since I like that, that's going to be amazing, right? And it'll mm-hmm. be a little bit different because it kind of feels that is coming from that place that we get most of our things from that feels safe for us. So continuing to drive that type of community was important to us and doing it internally through the community piece, but then also reaching out to external to the community and going after middle schools and high schools and also HBCUs. Last year, we had a couple of events where we actually partnered with some of the HBCUs out there to kind of expose the craft of design to them. Hmm, interesting. You know, when I was in an HBCU some 20 some years ago, <laughs> one of the first company, one of the first tech companies I interviewed with was Microsoft. And actually, I mean, I tell, I think I've told this story on the podcast before. I'm well outside of college now, so I can sort of tell the story how I scammed my way in there. But essentially, I was, I was a math major in college. And my whole thing was I was part of this program that was sponsored by NASA, like my scholarship and everything. And so the goal was like, oh, well, when you graduate college, you're going to work for one of these NASA facilities. I had already interned at two NASA facilities. So like in my mind, I'm thinking, boom, career set when I graduate NASA, right? 9-11 happens. And when that happened, the funding for my program got pulled and it went towards Homeland Security. And so this whole guarantee of like, oh, well, you're going to work for NASA when you graduate completely gone. So I'm like, damn, I got to find a way to like, I don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate because I was working at the high museum selling tickets for like eight seventy an hour, like not making, you know, no real kind of money and really had no prospects of like career stuff. But I had sort of gotten in really good with the computer science department with the secretary there. Shout out to Mrs. Banks. I don't know if she's even still there or not, but got in really good with her Started hanging out in the computer lab and stuff, started hanging out in her office, and that got me access to this interview book. And the interview book was basically, you know, juniors and seniors that were interviewing with all these companies. And all you had to do was just kind of like slip your resume in, put your name down. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm just going to slip my resume in there. 
and write my name in it. And like I interviewed with Real Player to show you how long ago that was. That went nowhere. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I interviewed with Microsoft. And I remember, God, I don't remember the woman's name who I interviewed with, but it was a black woman. Interview with her. And she gave me one interview question. She was like, design an alarm clock for a blind person. And she slid over like a sheet of paper and a pen and was like, just walk me through your your process. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I was talking through like, oh, we should do this and it should vibrate and, you know, maybe have sound and all this kind of, you know. She was like, okay, all right, great. And she took it and she put it in a folder, shook my hand and like, that was it. That was the interview. I was like, that's it? Okay, well, apparently it was good enough because they flew me out to Seattle to do an interview with Microsoft and they had it in like this sort of, almost like an elimination style. Like, <laughs> I don't know if, if the interviews are like this now, but like you do the first interview and if you pass the first one, you go to the second one. And if you pass the second one, you go to the third one. And this was all day for like an internship. I remember because it started at maybe like 8 a.m. And it was getting until around maybe like 7 p.m. I was tired. And I forget what the question was. It was something about notepad and like right to left text or something. And I think it was at that point that they realized, oh, wait a minute, you're not a computer science major, are you? Because it was some programming stuff. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And I didn't get the internship. But I remember vividly being on the campus and and everything and like, When I think of companies that have sort of given me a chance in college, like Microsoft was that one company. So the fact that y'all are still doing HBCU research now some 20-something years later is a testament to the fact that you all have put skin in the game and that it's not just, oh, we need to look for diversity. Where should we look? Why not look at black colleges? Like, you all have been doing this now for a long time. Indeed, indeed. Uh, It's it's incredibly rewarding, not just to win by yourself, but it's also incredibly rewarding to see others win and see that spark in a high schooler's eye that like, wait a second, I can become a designer. I could be a researcher. I can work at Microsoft. It's like, yeah. Or actually um, one of the previous workshops uh, with Codehouse, shout out to Codehouse in Atlanta, who brought in 29 students from Morehouse and uh, Spelman at the time. And we ran through just a roughly about a six hour to seven hour workshop with design. And you can kind of see the amazing minds that are there and applying design thinking to those amazing minds. Our leaders coming behind us are going to be crazy good. Um, And I think that is the reward that most of us get from that because there's a great chance that, Hey, we will be working with these leaders later on in life. So it's extremely rewarding. And I would say the fact that you're, you know, you mentioned high schoolers and middle schoolers, like you're going past just reaching them while they're in college. Like you're getting them at a really pivotal age when they can make a decision on where do I want to go in terms of like my, I want to say my career. I I really think it's unfair to sort of burden an 18 year old with that anyway. But like the fact that you're showing them that this is an option because now social media and technology is ubiquitous. Like I was when I was a teenager in the 90s, like <laughs> there was like Game Boy, there was Tamagotchi, there was Super Nintendo, like they were like, it was all consumer electronics sort of stuff. Certainly no smartphones or anything like that. But now you can sort of show them like you can be more than just a consumer or a user. You can be a creator, like you can be someone that makes this stuff. And to show them that at such a pivotal young age at middle school and high school is really something. That is so key. I mean, even if they choose not to become a designer, we still win because we just taught them design thinking. So now from that point on, yeah. they have that emotional intelligence or that critical thinking mass to take with them to the next adventure. And I think that's, you know, a part of the reward back to us as well. Absolutely. Now let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. You mentioned being in Texas. Is that where you uh, also grew up? No, actually, um, I grew up in South Florida in a small town called Boynton Beach, which is roughly about 40 minutes north of Miami. Okay. Growing up there, like, were you exposed a lot to design and everything? Not at all. So I like to tell the story this way, that growing up in Boynton and also just South Florida in general, uh, you're growing up in a football arena. Mm. (laughs) And there's not much else to do outside of football. You 
got the notoriety that you had from football. There's countless of times of pretty much kids starting playing football at four years old. Um, yeah. And you could see those kids training and practicing with parachutes at four or five, just trying to get faster and trying to get better there. It's still to this day, I believe the uh, South Florida is leading in the most NFL prospects within the country. And it's not by chance. It's just simply because of the arena of how important football is in those areas. Because of that, that had gave me an opportunity to be exposed to being a football player, but just doing it a little differently. I still had some of the tenacity of being on the D-line and knowing how to use my hands and knowing how to be fast and running seven on sevens with, with different people. But I also found a unique ability of me actually setting up the field. I love the aspect of walking each five yards and putting a cone or a shoe or a hat down to say that this was a first down or this was a yard marker or this was going to be the goal line, even down to cones. I'll I'll never look at orange cones the same ever in my life (laughs) because I would take these orange cones and you would create different patterns, a pentagon, a triangle, a um, square, a circle. Depending on the pattern that's on the ground, that's where your feet or your toes would interact with mm-hmm. in order to beat the drill. I got really good at setting up these cones. I really started to understand, like, well, wait a second, I'm good at this. I can also draw a little bit. Where is this leading me? <laughs> and I, I just said, like, nah, don't worry about it. I'm good. I'm going to just, uh, you know, put that to the side and continue on with life as is. But the opportunity presented itself when I got into college, once leaving the Boynton area. But I appreciate the hardships of Boynton because it taught me the lessons that were needed to be a champion on the things that came to me afterwards. Mm. I know what you mean about sort of growing up in that like crucible of football. I mean, I'm from South Alabama, well, like South Central Alabama, and mm-hmm. it's either Alabama or Auburn, one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> so I know what it, I know what it is about like and I remember, you know, there were like those, you know, like Pop Warner football leagues and stuff like that and you know, I wanted to be in it. My mom was like, "Nope, you're not doing that." But I remember like there, there would be 6-year-old, 7-year-olds in like pads tackling. Like I remember that exactly. vividly about growing up that whole thing about just really getting into football. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. But I, I think this is kind of like how I attribute back how football kind of taught me design because being one of those four-year-olds out there with the helmet that can't hardly hold myself up, but making tackles, it's not just the football field. It's the people. It's the cars around the football field. It's the atmosphere of the lights being on at a certain time. It's the, you know, the, the concession stands as part of food trucks before food trucks were food trucks. Mm-hmm. Right. It was all of that atmosphere that kind of gave me a sense of how, not knowing at a time, but how design was working or things were designed around me. Yeah. I was in the marching band, too, in middle school and high school. So every mm-hmm. Friday night, like, yeah, that whole it's a whole production. It's a whole production, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So given that football kind of taught you design in that way, that's also why you ended up studying it, I would imagine, in college. You went to Washburn University, right? Well, the interesting thing, yeah, I went to Washburn University. I think prior to Washburn University, I like to tell the story this way, that I earned my way to the middle of Kansas at a junior college called Butler County Community College by not getting great grades at uh, in high school. So that also earned me the opportunity to see a deer for the first time, see a cow for the first time. <laughs> Didn't know turkeys to fly. Yeah. Found that out. And they're yeah. mean. <laughs> Man. They're very mean. They're very mean <laughs> birds. Probably because we eat them every year, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it was so interesting to have that culture shock from being from the city and brick and hard uh, hardship and going into country immediately. The, mm-hmm. the school itself was a college a cemetery, a Walmart, and an oil field. The rest Ooh. was just the school. 
<laughs> so <laughs> it was a stark reality of, hey, if you want to excel in life, there are some things that you will have to do. And that stark reality basically helped me understand like what the direction I wanted to go into next. And so as part of the JUCO experience, you get an opportunity for teams from across the country to come in and actually draft you or actually pick you up or recruit you from that location. So it's actually high school part two. And during that process, the school Washburn drove about maybe three to four hours down the road in Kansas and actually picked me up and took me to the campus. And it was, you know, like one of those moments where you step in and like, look around like, man, this is nice. Okay. Okay. I think I could do this. Right. And it, it was, it was slow and it, it, feel like academia that you saw in the movies for my aspect, right? Okay. Um, and I think that's what drew me to it because I saw like a calmness or a peace around it. And I think heading there, starting out, it wasn't immediately designed. It was jumping directly into psychology. And I thought for sure that I was going to be a psychologist, actually getting up to somewhat of my senior year in psychology classes and actually stopping and actually working as security as part of the design, uh, as part of the work study football job, making sure that people log off the the Mac lab, I I guess. I got the (laughs) opportunity to kind of play on the computers from every once in a while, right? Mm -hmm. And the classes that were more of the later classes were the Illustrator, the Photoshop, I'm going to date myself now, Flash Multimedia or Swish Max <laughs> classes, right? Oh, my um, God, Swish. Oh, my God. <laughs> you took it back. You really took it back with Swish. <laughs> Being able to see those classes actually happen gave me an opportunity to like, wait a second. Like, they're doing what I was doing, but drawing. But they're making stuff move. They're making their drawings move. How is that happening? Oh, wait a second. And and I think after talking with the professor that night, I actually went in the next day and changed my major to art and then started to go down this path of being the football player, leaving practice with an easel, <laughs> running <laughs> across the football field with an easel and all of my art uh, materials and, and running into the art lab. And of course, sitting in the corner because pretty much I'm just leaving football practice and, you know, fresh shower, but still just leaving football practice, four hours of practice. So I dealt with that dynamic for, you know, two more years and it was incredibly beneficial for me just simply because it started to introduce me into graphic design. I was always exposed to graphic design via bubble letters, airbrush tees, just drawing certain things for certain people, but just didn't know that it was actual profession behind it. And being able to make that correlation there kind of sparked my career into the design world. Yeah, sort of, you know, getting that exposure to it, knowing that this is something, it's an option that you can take because prior to that, design was something that you just sort of consumed, like you mentioned in these sort of like bubble letters and stuff like that. But now knowing like, oh, wait, I can do that too. I can make mm-hmm. that. I mean, even that whole setup about leaving football practice and going to art class with an easel sounds like a feel good holiday movie or something. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you ever want to transcribe that into a story, I bet Hallmark will pick it up. <laughs> That sounds pretty dope. <laughs> I may have to do that. That's a good idea. I'll so, that. <laughs> yeah. So what were those like early days post-college, like in terms of your career? Like you've graduated now, you were majoring in, in graphic design. Like what was next after that? You know, it was the real world posting its first challenge to me. I think that first challenge to me was getting into an internship. Well, as a football player, you're spending 40 hours a week on football. So you're not able to kind of go and market yourself to other agencies and say like, hey, I'm a designer. I can do these things. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't acceptable or it wasn't available for you. But in my case, the real world slap that was put in front of me was I, in order to work my internship, which I finally got at a local ad agency's Joan Hewitt's and Partners there in Topeka, Kansas. I was only able to do that internship on Fridays from roughly 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. In order to be able to do that, I'm finished with school, but of course I have to make money somehow. So I hustled my way into talking to a Topeka youth project, a local small school that taught kids 
that were 15 to 21 jobs and life skill readiness. So it was my job to go out to the local fast food restaurants, the local libraries, anybody who had a job for 18 and actually become a business representative and pitch the school to that company to say, hey, I know you, manager, and I know this kid that I just taught this class. You guys sound like you'll be a great match. You should probably hire this kid, Hmm. right? Getting the kid hired, that was was the first indication of negotiation and and stakeholder-like agreements, right? Knowing how to actually have those conversations, right? While doing that, I was only able to work, I believe it was 28 hours a week or 25 hours a week with that company. In order to do that as a business representative, I bargained to say, hey, let me help you with your website and your logo as well. So I'll do your website and your logo, and I'll also be your business representative. So I was was doing that. So a normal day for me post-college, and this is how bad I really wanted to be in this world of design. I worked from 8 a.m. to roughly about 3 p.m., Monday through Wednesday at the Topeka Youth Project. On Tuesday through Thursday, I was working overnight shift at FedEx, unloading trucks. So pretty much from roughly about 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. And then in between the Thursday to Friday, I was also unloading packages to Target and basically like being a Target shelf stalker. All so that I can get the internship completed and also get the first level of experience out of the way. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, most designers now coming out of college don't have to worry about those types of stories and those types of hustles. But it was just a slightly different for me being in a small town and just wanting to make this work so bad and not wanting to go back home and say, like, you know, hey, I didn't do it. I didn't make it. That was the start of hard work makes something out of you, but then also hard work um, creates the character that you need as you continue to progress. You were hustling. Listen, man, it had to happen. That reminds me a lot of, uh, there's another guest we had on the show several, several years ago. His name is Ben Lindo. He's a industrial engineer out of, I think he's out of Philly or Pittsburgh. One of the two, but he was mentioning how he would do design school. He was doing design school and it was a UPS driver at the same time and like would come to class in his like UPS uniform and the, the teacher would always have something to say and that kind of thing. But like he made it work. I mean, you know, you when you're out there on your own, you have to hustle to make that, you know, to sort of make that happen. You have to make those those sacrifices, those compromises. And it sounds like you really, really hustled to make that happen. So props to you. Exactly, exactly. And I think it benefited me a lot just because I was exposed to so many different conversations, so many levels of small talk, yeah, so many levels of strategy. I knew that I can unload a semi truck of boxes from FedEx in under an hour and under 56 minutes uh, holding that record, doing that, right? But I also knew the pattern of if I unload the boxes too fast on the belt, it could stop the belt. And then pretty much that makes the day longer for other people that are behind me. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just so many lessons that are there through on that first year out of college. Yeah. I mean, it really teaches you the the value of hard work too. You know, I mean, I think it's one thing if you're, you're going to school and you manage to land that like super cushy gig right out of school and it's not too hard, but not too easy. Like it's just, it's kind of a Goldilocks kind of situation. But I mean, there's another thing when you get out and you really have to like hustle to like carve your way into a position or to to get to a point where you're going to be, you know, hopefully setting yourself up for the future in a good way, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, just being the first of the family to go to college, first of the family to graduate college, you knew and understood you are your help. It wasn't something else that, you know, you can wait on. You, You were your help. You mm-hmm. were ascending this next uh, avenue and arena so that you can then help your family on the back end of it. Yeah, like you said, you know, it's that it's that thing where you don't want to go back home like defeated. You don't want to go back home like, oh, I couldn't make it. Like you sort of that also pushes you and drives you to succeed as well. That feeling. Yes. Yes. 
So you worked for like a number of companies between like being in Kansas, being in Florida, being in Texas, worked for a lot of places. When you look back at your career now that you're at Microsoft, do you feel like there was a particular moment or, or a particular job or, or anything where you felt like you had leveled up? Hmm. I think it was the first opportunity to leave South Florida and working in the banking industry down there at the credit union where I started to see the shift from design as more so as a graphic or tangible color or button style to design as a product experience element moving forward. And I think that was the transition from working in South Florida at the credit union to getting a first big break at working for Barclays Bank here in the Dallas, Texas area. One of the mentors that I had at the local ad agency who saw the drive of what I was doing actually called me up from the South Florida area like, hey, you want to try this out? It's like, well, nah, you know, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm building websites. I'm doing club flyers. I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm around my family, but not too close because, you know, I don't want to get on my nerves, but pretty much I'm close enough so I can go hug them and come back. Right. Um, But it really was at that point in which I saw the level kind of change because it went from me being just a single designer slash webmaster slash business representative at that that local credit union, continuing that trend, to not just being a slash, but being a focused, disciplined designer. And that was coming into that first level of product design at Barclays there with that company. Now, also, you know, prior to Microsoft, you worked for two other pretty large companies. You worked at Capital One. You also worked at FedEx. Was it a big sort of culture shift going from those two companies, like one's logistics, one's banking, going from that to like a strict tech company? Was that a big shift? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the amazing part of my pathway is that each one of those companies had a different element that I'm using today in terms of my leadership and moving forward. So within Capital One in the fintech arena, you're constantly thinking about how could you do things as a group? It's all about innovation, how to be. And I, I greatly appreciate just being there in that arena because it Capital One didn't consider itself to be a bank. It happened to be a, as they say, a tech company that so happens to be a bank. And that opportunity of being with instant innovation all the time and blue sky thinking and being able to stop projects from releasing and saying like, hey, wait a second, like, let's, was that innovative enough? Like, are we really proud of this thing? to the introduction of service design and the introduction of like critical thinking and the folks from IDEO coming in and kind of merging into that as well. Capital One taught me somewhat of the college of product thinking and design external to school, external to that other layer of just design as a button color or movement. Okay. Capital One gave me the piece of grounding. Then moving into FedEx, it was like, wait a second. Like, I've learned all of these things. I can put these things to use. Do you want to see them? And they're like, no, we're a little bit more safe here. (laughs) 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 We're we're just a tad bit more safe. Um, But I think the logistics side of FedEx taught me the technical aspect of what an engineer actually has to do in order for packages to arrive at a certain time. Understanding, and I'll never forget this quote from one of the engineers, he basically said to me, like, Terrell, how do you build a tank? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, military builds tanks. Like, you send a request to the military, they build a tank. He was like, no, if you had to build a tank yourself, how would you start? And I think this is similar to your your clock challenge here, where an engineer thinking about a tank is going to be the larger items first and then start going into the cogs of the tank and building the cogs to get back out to the larger things. Having a base, building in, and then starting building out the shell of the tank and the color of the tank, none of that matters to them. 
And that gave me the perspective of how an engineer thinks versus a PM thinks versus a designer thinks. So wrapping all of that around and kind of turning the corner here and going back to where I'm at at Microsoft, it was the critical thinking and also being able to take chances at Capital One, also along with the technical understanding and saying, hey, I can't go build this tank without these particular cogs. They're important to somebody. They're important to the experience. And then they're also important to the team that's building it. So how do I become a technical designer slash team player? And then entering into, you know, one of the largest tech companies in the world, it's how do you mash up all of that experience into something and make sure that you've, you can speak the engineering language, you can speak the PM language, and you also provide the quality and also the confidence within a customer using this product moving forward. So that's somewhat, uh, hopefully I'm answering that question in, uh, in the best way. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that you always want to think about how you can transfer skills when you're going from one like really big, I think, type of company to another one. And granted, all of these do have tech sort of at their core in some way. You're just using that tech to solve different problems. Right, right. And I, I think... Doing that and also keeping the duality of going back to football, you know, no man left behind or no person left behind and going back and sitting, having lunch with the engineers, sitting next to them and saying like, hey, show me what you did, because that was kind of dope. Like, how did you do that? Right. Spending the time to get to know your teammates, getting the time to actually (laughs) make this analogy. Football, there's 93 plays to a game. How many times have you talked to your coworkers in a week? How could you start to understand what they're going through? How could you start to extend to your team and actually give them the same type of camaraderie that they're looking for? Because you are spending a lot of time with that person. So uh, just anchoring back those principles inside of the duality of also having the technical chops to talk shop if you needed to. Yeah. And, you know, one other interesting thing, you know, and you sort of talked about this, I think, a little bit at the top of the interview was that. You've also, maybe not at each of these companies, but certainly you did this at uh, Capital One and now at Microsoft. You know, you started these these black ERGs. Was it important for you to sort of build that community as you started? Like, how did that manifest itself? You know, it was incredibly important to see other people like me within the design world. I think like most designers starting out, you're constantly looking for mentorship and to... Sometimes you have to be the mentor as you're rising yourself and you're providing advice to people. However, you're looking for some advice yourself. And I think within the different groups, it was the opportunity to not only see people that look like you doing amazing things and being able to connect with them and saying or resonating and saying, hey, I've gone through that as well, or I have had this conversation as well to more of just that camaraderie of, have you had an ethics conversation about this design? What did they say about this ethics conversation? And being able to just talk shop with them um, in that way. I think the pleasure that I have within all of these groups is they're all unique and all based on just different stories of how they got started. I think within the Capital One space, there were roughly about six of us that stood up at it all hands and were like, hey, I see you, I see you, I see you, right? And it was like, well, maybe we should stay in touch. And then it went from maybe we should stay in touch to maybe we should have meetings to maybe we should influence more recruiting and to maybe we should have somewhat of a council or somewhat of a type of event. And then with the Capital One piece, it was then like, how do I extend that outside of the company? Because I, I can't just do it from Capital One. How do I also extend inside of the Dallas area? So then it was, you know, working with the Bobby Lloyds, the Michael Tinglin, the Laboria Willis, the Adrian here to kind of expand, just create a ripple here in the Dallas area, but then also move around to the Houston area. So, you know, just trying our best to create events and also create community for us here. And I think that just followed me just going into the black designer space at at Microsoft because it was, it was so welcomed by other people in that community too. And also the aspect of 
being able to create something that you know 20 years from now will still be there is something that I'm, you know, I, I get chills over just simply be thinking like, you know, hey, that group is going to be amazing because we set it up in that way and they have their heart in the right place. Mm. When, you know, when you think back throughout your career, you mentioned mentorship. Who have been some of the mentors that have really helped you out in your career? Oh, wow. I think <laughs> there's there's some really awesome people out there. I say, you know, some folks like Ty Griffin comes to mind. Then there's, you know, people who were helping that didn't even know that they were helping that were just more friendships, right? Like the Tim Allen's out there, the, you know, Dantley Davis's out there, the folks like Dr. Oko, who was pretty much the person who kind of helped me shift from saying like, I'm just going to work in a hospital to, Hey, I'm going to go to college. I'd say those people along with, you know, the pastor Hicks in Topeka, Kansas, the Lisa Carters that are out there and all the football coaches associated with it. Like those are some of the people that kind of gave me the drive, but also instilled that I cannot just keep this to myself. I have to also throw the rope back for somebody else or leave a breadcrumb for somebody else behind me so that how I can help them would be uh, beneficial to the future. In recent years, what would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learned about yourself? So I would say that I've learned that I am incredibly a nerd when it comes to setting things up and being and deeply in process. I read some of the similar books throughout the week. I have my coffee and sit on the stoop and actually uh, <laughs> bask in the sun. But also just, just that appreciation of design and the little things. And I think this recent trip that I just took to Denmark for a design workshop there, kind of reminded me as I saw an enabled person actually leave the train with a wand with a, a wand who is basically visually impaired actually get off the train stubble on the little ground stubbles and pretty much make their way like a boss to the escalator like without any help it was a reminder to me of like huh somebody thought in process of this person leaving the train in this way Somebody thought about the doorknobs that's in front of me. Somebody thought about the angles that are in front of me. Like, what are the processes that I'm creating for people behind me as well? How do you define success now? I define success a little differently from other people. And I, I, I say that just to say that I look at success as an opportunity to succeed. As long as you have that opportunity, I don't believe that you fail. I believe that you learn. And if you have that opportunity. You started in part of that success. You've already to start is success. Hmm. I like that because oftentimes really it's just that first step that you have to make. Exactly. You have the thought and you have a couple of seconds to go about that thought, right? Or a couple of minutes or that first step, like you mean, like just to, I think we, we're a little bit hard on ourselves sometimes. And I think just to start in itself is success. Hmm. What would you like the next chapter of your story to be? Hmm. So I have this grand dream of creating pillars of design practices across the country. And they're anchored inside of some of the experiences that I've had over in the past of the different tech companies or the different businesses that I worked for. But I, I think mostly the desire to have those communities or those practices is kind of related back to just wanting to leave breadcrumbs. I want to, my desire is to work on the next, the next 20 years. Now there's an amazing book out there called what the forecast. And I look at it almost every week because it kind of puts these brain like exercises in front of you that says it's five years from now. I am doing this. I am driving this. I am living here. And it goes from five years to 15 years to 20 years. And I'm constantly thinking about those 20 years just because it's, if you don't start on it, it'll just sneak up on you. So that's my uh, next step here, just continuing on that path of thinking about those next 20 years. And I have breakfast with some amazing guys almost every other weekend. And 
we joke and say like, well, we're talking about our 85 year old self and what our 85 year old self is eating. What could we do now to help our 85 year old self? Are we at 85 and we're riding motorcycles to meet for breakfast? Are we, <laughs> are we pulling up in our wheelchairs? Are we, you know, are we, do we have scooters? Like how, how mobile do we want to be when we get to that age? So I'm constantly thinking about the future in normal yet intriguing terms of life now. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah. So if anyone wants to find me on LinkedIn, definitely reach out to me. Um, If I can't get back to you, I promise you I will find somebody that can get back to you. So Terrell Cobb, T-E-R-E-L-L-C-O-B-B on LinkedIn. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's vintage underscore numbers 424. I'm always there. And uh, those are some of the main channels right now where people can find me. All right. Sounds good. Well, Terrell Cobb, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One for just kind of like, you know, giving a peek behind the curtain as to what it is that you do at Microsoft and even how you've helped to create community, not just inside of Microsoft for designers there, black designers there, but also to help out in the community as well. But really sort of showing like the fact that perseverance is really the way, like there are so many paths into design. There's so many ways to be a success or to do anything really in this industry. And I think what your story really illustrates is that there's no one single way to do things. You know, there's no one way to be a success. And so hopefully people will get a chance to hear your story and we'll take that to heart. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. This was incredible. Thank you so much, Maurice. I really appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Terrell Cobb. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Terrell and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by music man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please reach out to us and talk to us. Don't be a stranger. You can hit us up on either Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. Of course, here in the States, this week is Thanksgiving, so hopefully you have a safe and wonderful Thanksgiving, especially if you're going to be out there traveling. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.